And so this evening we're going to look at Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 23, through verse 9 of chapter 3. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, And the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we pray that you would open up your word, for we speak in vain. We hear in vain, except for by the power of your Holy Spirit, you enlighten our minds, you open our hearts, and you renew our wills. Lord, we ask by the power of your Spirit that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, previously, with God's help, we have learned a bit more about ourselves from God's Word. We learned through the story of Moses that we can be impatient. (coughs) And we also learned that this impatience is not unique to us. We saw that a giant of the faith, like Moses, can be just as impatient for the glory of God. 
And there is nothing wrong with desiring the glory of God. In fact, that's what we were created for. But we must always keep in mind that faith follows. It does not lead. And so we saw previously that Moses failed in his attempt to deliver Israel. Not because he had bad motives. Not because he had the wrong purpose. But simply because he did not look to God in his timing. And just as we often do, Moses was attempting to hurry along God's providence so that he could avoid a waiting time. And so we saw the human viewpoint of the deliverance of Israel. Zeal without knowledge, impulsiveness, and failure. But now we know that it is not enough to just be patient. There must be a hope that we have in order for us to be patient, to understand our calling in that. I think of when someone has young children. It doesn't really help if you are wrestling to try to keep your children still or trying to understand what you can do with them. If someone just walks by and says, you know what, you should be patient. That's not very helpful. But when someone comes alongside you and says, you know, I've been where you are now. You see, my kids who are older and grown and how well behaved you think they are and how you think everything works well, well, they weren't always like that. These days will pass. God will get you through them. And it's that hope that is projected that allows us to rest and to be patient. And so tonight, we will begin to see, Lord willing, the divine viewpoint for the deliverance of Israel. Perfect timing, perfect patience, perfect success. God is active on behalf of his people at all times, even when it's hard to see. But his actions are not arbitrary. They are based on his love, which is based on his covenantal promises. Tonight we will see the context in which God acts, both corporately and individually. And that it is by means of his covenant. The basket in which God's providence is placed is called his covenant. So this evening we will see from our text that there are three aspects to God's covenantal providence. First, God never forgets his promises. Second, God never forgets his plan. And third, and I think most importantly for you and for me, God never forgets his people. Let's begin then by looking at how God never forgets his promises. We see this at the end of chapter 2. Verse 23 begins, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried for help. Now, Exodus, as we have been saying, has this characteristic. It begins passages in a seemingly ordinary way during those many days. This is another occasion in which we appear to be introduced to an ordinary incident. But we have to remember that during these many days is actually 40 years. We know this from the inspired commentary on our text from Acts chapter 7. 
how Stephen, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminds us that the time from which Moses fled Egypt to his return was 40 long years. That's an entire generation. Now stop and think about this for a minute. We get impatient with God. This is a time in which an entire generation would grow up, get married, have children, and start to see their children grow to almost marriageable age. This is a long time to wait on top of all of the previous waiting time. Moses was so impatient he couldn't wait any longer and God has him wait another 40 years. But now the waiting is over. It's as if you are in the waiting room and you hear that sweet sound when someone calls your name. It's your turn. The waiting is done. Now we can get down to business. And it's interesting because some of the circumstances clearly have changed, but that doesn't affect the providence of God. The waiting time is over, and the text tells us that the king of Egypt died. Now we might think that this was, would be cause for great celebration. After all, this king of Egypt was the one who was putting to death the Hebrew children. He was the one who sought to oppress the Israelites. It couldn't get any worse than him, could it? And we would expect, perhaps, that the next line would be, as God would use this providence, this death of this king, that the people of Israel cheered, and their burdens were lightened, and there was a spring in their step and a smile on their face. Except that's not what we read. We read that the king of Egypt died, but the oppression continued. As a matter of fact, the Israelites groaned under the oppression. This is no kindler, gentler Pharaoh that we meet. The people of Israel are groaning. Now, why are they groaning? I think the only thing we can take from this is that the situation for the Israelites has gotten worse, not better. They'd been under oppression for many, many, many decades. But now they groan out again because of their slavery. It has to be that the new Pharaoh has made the situation even worse than the previous Pharaoh. And the language that's used here is reminiscent of what we see in Exodus chapter 1. So it would stand to reason that in spite of the oppression of the Pharaoh, that the Israelites were flourishing by God's blessing. And that that caused yet more oppression from the Egyptians. God wants us to see specifically that the struggle the Israelites had was their slavery, not their harsh treatment. You notice that the word slavery here is repeated twice briefly. Because of their slavery, they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So what we see here is God is emphasizing that the problem for the Israelites is that they are in bondage. Now this is important for you and for me. Because if we transfer the situation of the Israelites to our own lives, we tend to think that what's wrong with our lives are circumstances. The difficulties that we face. The oppression we might have at work or at school or that we think appears in politics or in our nation. 
But that's not the problem of God's people. The problem of God's people is bondage. Bondage to the Egyptians, bondage to sin and misery. And God is delivering us not from difficult circumstances, but from slavery. God wants us specifically to see this. And what happens is they finally cry out to God. And they don't just cry out in a loud noise. No, they cry out specifically to God, the text says. They cried out for help. And their cry came to God. Now, you could just imagine, as this situation got worse and worse, perhaps someone, a historian in their midst, would say, this is horrible. We've been enslaved for hundreds of years. How long has it been? Someone else might say, it's got to be at least 300 years. Someone else would say, no, 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 I've been counting this since my great-great-grandfather's day. It's been almost 400 years. You could imagine then they would perk up. 400 years? Wait a minute. Isn't there a promise from God that after 400 years we would be delivered? They would go back to Genesis 15, 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And so they can cry out to God because God remembers He remembers his people. He remembers his covenant. He remembers his promises to them. And they can claim those promises because they are sure. And now they are nearly at the time of fulfillment. This is a help for you and for me. We should seek God at once. Because God is willing to hear us even before we have been in a long period of bondage. It is indeed a sign of deliverance, and that deliverance is near when we cry out to God. Because God remembers His promises. He doesn't forget that His promises are a part of His covenant. God's remembrance is more than a simple apprehension of our need for His help. Notice that the trouble that Israel has reminds God of his covenant. It is his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, this has a reality to it. God was faithful and merciful to all of the patriarchs. And it didn't depend at all on who they were. He was faithful to Abraham, though Abraham lied and deceived He was faithful to Isaac, even though Isaac preferred one son over the other. He was faithful to Jacob, though Jacob was a trickster trying to get ahead of everyone else. Because you see, the faithfulness of God does not depend upon the faithfulness of sinful men. This is important for us to remember. That God remembers his promises because of the covenant that he has made of his own accord. It doesn't depend on us. God's promises are God-centered. Do you see that from the text? Who's the actor here? It is God who heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. 
And he remembers Israel not because of any merit that they would have. After all, remember, Israel had rejected their deliverer. Moses had come and sought to deliver his people. And they faced him and they said, Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? Who made you to rule over us? Get out of here. You see, the people of Israel have hard hearts. They're poor sinners. God's promises are not made to such as deserve mercy, but to such as desire it. That's an important way to look at God's promises. And this is the same God that we have today. God has made his promises to us in Christ, and it doesn't depend on who we are or what we have done. God's promises are all yea and amen in Jesus Christ because of who God is. He remembers his promises. He sees that they are fulfilled. There is purpose behind God seeing his people. He wants to bring them help to fulfill his promise. The second thing we see is that God never forgets his plan. We see this here at the beginning of chapter 3. Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, note the transition here. Now, it's been 80 years of Moses' life. Forty more years have passed, and now Moses is finally prepared. Where before he was impatient, now he's prepared. But look at the circumstances we would look at these circumstances and say that Moses is not prepared, that things have gone backwards. Forty years ago, Moses was the prince of Egypt. He was right next to the throne. If ever we wanted to have something done in Egypt, we need somebody in high places, don't we? That's where we should look to power and influence. And now, Moses is living on the backside of a mountain. He's in a place that people in the boondocks call the boondocks. And what's his occupation? How's he employed? Is he a prince? A general? A leader? No, he's a shepherd. And wait for it. He doesn't even care for his own sheep. He doesn't have his own sheep to care for. He has to care for his father-in-law's sheep. Now, we might ask ourselves, why is God wasting all this time? Forty years have gone by, and it doesn't seem that Israel is any closer to being redeemed. But God's plan is not our plan. God always carries his plan through, and he never forgets it. He's never surprised. God's plan was to produce humility and meekness in Moses. And we know that God succeeded because the scripture tells us that Moses was the meekest of men on the earth. God wanted his plan for redeeming his people. He didn't want to persuade Egypt to let his people go. He wanted to show his power because Moses is not a prince anymore. He's a shepherd. And remember that Egyptians particularly loathed shepherds. Do you remember when Joseph was settling his family into Egypt? 
He said, the Pharaoh is going to ask you what your occupation is. And you need to be sure to tell him that you're a shepherd. Because then he'll put you off in your own land. Because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So it doesn't sound like God is doing a good job at winning friends and influencing people. He takes his redeemer from being a prince to the most hated occupation in all of Egypt. But why has God done this? God has done this to remove all worldly props from Moses. It has to be all about God. It can't be Moses' influence. It can't be his power. It can't be his speech. No. This redemption, the fulfillment of this plan, is all about God. Now, there is another note of encouragement here for us in the story of Moses. For many of us, it's hard to labor in obscurity. We want to be thanked for what we do. We want to be put on a pedestal. We want to get the respect that we think we deserve. And it's hard to continue to labor out of the spotlight, in the shadows, not getting the accolades that would encourage us. Now imagine you're Moses for 40 years preparing to deliver God's people. No one even knows where you are. Your job is to deal with sheep. Do not think that just because you are not front and center, God is not at work in your life. As a matter of fact, most often that's when God is most at work in your life. Because He gets all the glory. And so God then begins to execute His plan. Moses looks and he sees this bush that is burning and it's not consumed. Moses heads toward the bush, but I want you to see that God has set all of the parameters for this meeting. God is the one who has gotten Moses' attention. God is the one who has changed nature, if you will, so that the bush burns but is not consumed. And as he meets with Moses, he has laid out all of the parameters. First, he shows Moses his holiness. He says, you are on holy ground. Take off your shoes. He reminds Moses of his covenant relationship, not only with Israel, but with Moses. He says, I am the God of your father. Not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the God of your father. God reminds Moses of his compassion. He says, I know the sorrows of my people. And he gives Moses his purpose. I have come down to deliver my people. God is the one who is initiating with Moses. And do you see how tender God is with Moses? If you don't see it, remember that on this very spot is where in Exodus 19, God will appear in such thunder and lightning that the Israelites will say to Moses, you go, we cannot go or we will die. And yet here Moses is greeted with a soft calling voice. Moses, Moses, come here to me, Moses. Come close to me, Moses. Let me tell you of my care and compassion for you 
and of my people. It is a gracious call. It is a personal call. God doesn't just say, hey, potential redeemer. Hey, shepherd. You see, I think sometimes we think that God is so busy with so many billions of people on earth that he can't possibly know about me and my particular problems and my particular needs. Well, the Bible speaks contrary to that over and over again. And this is one of those instances. God knows exactly who Moses is. And he calls him by name. He wants Moses to know that he knows exactly who he is. And this is a good example of how we should approach God. We should approach God not with familiarity. We should know that God is holy. And that we don't just storm into his presence metaphorically, without taking the shoes from off our feet. But at the same time, as we approach God, He is personal. He is compassionate. And we need not fear Him. In the bush, we see something else. The text tells us that in the bush, the angel of the Lord appeared. And yet, what happens? Who speaks from the bush? We see in verse 4, God called out to Moses. So who is it? Is it the angel of the Lord? Or is it God? The answer is yes. It's both. Because the angel of the Lord, not just an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord is the same angel that wrestled with Jacob. And then God spoke to Jacob. He's the same angel of the covenant in Malachi 3. This angel of the Lord is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is Jesus appearing, the pre-incarnate Christ, God himself, who is the angel of the Lord, coming to Moses. Now this shouldn't surprise us, because God is revealed to his people through Jesus. And it shouldn't surprise us, because Jesus is the one who redeems his people. Notice, The completeness of the names of God in verse 4. The Lord God, both His covenant name, Yahweh, and His Trinitarian name, Elohim. All the aspects of God are found in this encounter. So God is executing His plan, and He executes it in a way that is personal and relational. There is a context of hope here. Do you remember when someone asked Jesus about the resurrection and about whether there was life after death? Do you remember what scripture Jesus used to give assurances of the resurrection? He used this text. He said, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You see, Jesus uses this to give us hope. To show that God is the God of the living. To show that God is a God of relationship. That his promises are being fulfilled. That they have already been fulfilled in the case of Abraham. Sovereignly elected. Isaac, the one who was given life from death. And Jacob, the long-suffering one. God's covenant should be a source of comfort and support for us today. 
God never forgets his plan. The third and final thing that we see is that God never forgets his people. We see this in Exodus 2, verse 25. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, there is much more to this than simply God knowing some facts. It's not as if God is taking notes saying, yeah, I understand there's oppression going on here. Noted for the record. No. What really is going on here is this word carries a connotation of intimate knowledge, of relationship. And it's especially this way when it is used in the context of a covenantal relationship. The scripture opens up with this verb being used of Adam knowing Eve. Now, there is much more going on there in their relationship, in their marital relationship, than merely God understanding and describing that Adam took recognition that there was a lady standing nearby. No. We might actually compare this knowledge to the covenantal knowledge that Jesus has of his people. Paul writes it this way in 2 Timothy 2. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And Jesus put it this way. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own. And my own know me. There is an intimate relationship here between God and his people. And because of that, God identifies with his people. We see this in chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard of their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now imagine what the Israelites thought at this time. They thought they'd perhaps been abandoned. That God had left them. But what's the reality? God is there. God knows them intimately. God knows their sufferings. God sees their afflictions. And God wants to do something about it. Notice what God had seen. He saw the tyranny of their oppressors. He saw their cry for help. And he saw their sorrow. This was not just a noise that got God's attention. God is in intimate relationship with his people. I think perhaps the best way to understand this is to be a mother. You know what this is like, don't you, moms? When you're at church or in the store or out somewhere and a baby cries. And you stop and you perk your ear. And you say to yourself, no, that's not mine. I can relax. Or you say, absolutely that's mine. I've got to get up and take care of it. Right? Isn't it amazing how moms can distinguish between babies crying? I don't think they've given that chip to dads. We don't, at least we're not as good at it. But a mother can hear her babies cry and instantly know that her child needs her. She even knows the variations of the cry. This is a cry that the baby doesn't really need me. The baby's just trying to make a fuss. This is a cry the baby really needs me. This is a cry the baby's hungry. This is a cry the baby's sleepy, right? 
It's like a whole language of communication. That's what we're seeing here with God and his people. They cry out, but God hears them. He knows them. And he instantly bonds with them. Because God not only identifies with his people, he is involved with his people. Now is the time for the fulfillment of his promise. That's why God comes to Moses now. It's not because now the Israelites have it so much worse than they did last year. No, God is fulfilling his promise and his plan for his people in accordance with his word. He's prompted by compassion. He says, I am come down to redeem my people. Now what should that remind you of? Who else came down to redeem his people? But the Lord Jesus Christ. And the purpose that God has enacted here is to deliver his people from bondage. But that's not all. No. God wants to bring his people into a marvelous new land where they can serve him and worship him and be blessed. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ does for his people. It's not just that somehow we can avoid the punishment of sin. No. Jesus brings us from death to life, from wickedness to righteousness, to live and worship with him for all eternity. What a great redemption Jesus brings to his people. So this evening, as you contemplate this end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3, remember that God can and does lift sinners out of bondage. There is no hope for you in waiting for your circumstances merely to change. The Israelites might have hoped that a new Pharaoh would mean things would get better. But they didn't. They didn't need a new Pharaoh. They needed God. They didn't need new rights. They needed redemption. And you can always look to God and to His covenant as a source of comfort no matter what. Remember that the Jews rejected their deliverer, yet God graciously kept pursuing them. He pursued Moses to the very end of the earth. But remember that Moses had to attend on the means that God used to make himself known. As Moses saw the bush, he went to God. We have it the same way. God is found in his word. And so we need to attend upon his word if we want to dwell with God. If we want to hear from God, we have to go where God is. And God is found in his word. Finally, remember that God remembers his covenant. Whenever things seem bleak, God is there. He's not absent, no matter what mistakes you make. If you are in Christ, God is in covenant with you. He will always remember his covenant. He will always hear your cry. He will always have compassion. This is the great God that we serve. Let us praise him. 
for his remembrance of his promises, his remembrance of his plan, and for his remembrance of us, his people. Let's pray.